Good evening, everyone. Lovely to see you this evening. Um, it's a great pleasure to welcome Andrew. Um, many of you will know Andrew. He's been vicar of St. Sebastian's for many years, and so is our close neighbour. Um, but he's done lots of other things. He's a canon of Christchurch Cathedral. Uh, he um, has a, a role in all kinds of diocesan um, activities, including having been on Bishop's Council for a very long time, I think. And Bishop's Council is one of these shadowy things, which is decides everything. It advises the bishop. It advises the bishop of Oxford, and so it's an important, it's an important activity. Um, Andrew has kindly come to talk to us about um, something that is quite close to our theme for this week. And if you're in church on Sunday, you will recall that um, our theme is. Uh, Lent well spent in the name of Jesus, Jesus Messiah. And so Andrew is going to explain how his title, or what leads on from his title. He's going to explain <coughs> He's going to explain everything. So <laughs> you, you really don't want to hear any more from me, do you? Andrew, welcome, and it's very kind of you to come. Uh, and before you start, shall we begin with Let's pray. Heavenly Father, for all the blessings that you have showered on us, for our ability to meet together in safety and to worship you and think about all the things that are yours, we give you thanks. We pray for Andrew as he comes to speak to us tonight. And we pray that his words will inspire us and help us to understand better what it is that Jesus is your Messiah. So in his name we pray. Amen. 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 Thank you, Joanna. Thank you for inviting me. It's really good to be here. And I hope that what I'm going to bring is going to be of some interest. Now, can everybody hear me all right? Yes. Yes? Good. If I drop my voice, you can wave at me or something and just tell me. So um, I've picked this theme, Anointed Saviour, Anointed People. And you'll see how that's linked to Jesus as Messiah. You may already know how that's linked, some of you may, but uh, if you don't, you'll certainly see it as we go on. But it seemed to me, as I was thinking about this, that actually uh, anointing is not a word that we use very much today, is it? It's not something that you... Uh, you daily think of doing. But actually, it's an activity that we engage in quite a lot. So here are some pictures. Somebody in the middle is being massaged with massaging oil. If you go along to Nirvana Spa or one of these places to have a massage, then that's probably what they'll do. Or here we've got bath oil. Some of you might use bath oil in your bath. Uh, or there's body oil on the, on the other side. And then, of course, there's a whole host out there of medical creams, uh, ointments, things that we use to anoint our bodies. Uh, that one, aqueous cream, will be very familiar to you if any of you have ever suffered from eczema, as I do, uh, because that's a kind of staple ointment for, for eczema. But it's interesting because some of these things have a, a, a different sort of overtone. They have slightly magical overtones. So if you were able to read what's on the bath oil, it says this, 
help aid revitalizing bath oil, stimulate, revitalize, energize the mind and body. <laughs> well, that's quite a claim, isn't it? Doesn't mean you want to rush out and buy it, you know. And then this one over here is feel the power body oil for men. <laughs> See on your men, go out and buy feel the power. But isn't it interesting how these things have these kind of overtones of promising something slightly more than probably they will deliver. But anyway, so anointing is not something that we're unfamiliar with, it's just the term perhaps uh, that we don't use. But I want to take you right back in time to the ancient Near East. I started my career as an archaeologist, and archaeologists have found anointing bowls and vessels, uh, in right, going right back to prehistoric times in, in the ancient Near East, uh, and they was, were used for, anointing was used in those days for purification, for bodily hygiene and beautification, some of the same, some of the same things we just talked about, uh, for the treatment of wounds and curing diseases, that was uh, a common use of oil in those days, and for the anointing of kings and priests. And all of that was inextricably linked really with the gods that they believed in, with, with the concept of magic. Uh, they would believe, for example, that disease was associated with evil spirits, things like that. And so, so oil has a magical property in some of, these, some of these ancient societies. Well, let's move on and just think about the Old Testament. Oops, press the wrong button. There we go. In the Old Testament, we find a division between the sort of practical anointing, which is <clears throat> the anointing of, for the care of the body, anointing for beauty, as a mark of honour for a guest, those kind of things. Um, and in Hebrew, there are words for that, so there's suk or tuar, and in the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, it's the word alepha which is used for that. Uh, but there's a division between that kind of anointing and what we might call symbolic anointing, uh, which is the anointing of kings and priests. We'll come and talk a little bit more about that in a minute. Uh, but in, in the case of the symbolic anointing, there are two words that are used, one in Hebrew and one in Greek. The one in Hebrew is Massah, which if you're clever you'll realise is very close to Messiah. And, uh, and in Greek, the Septuagint version, the, 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 the Greek New Testament, the Greek Old Testament, sorry, uh, there is the word Prio which is just used to translate Messiah. And of course, Trio is very close to Christ. We'll come to all that in a minute. So, here we have in the Old Testament really a, a kind of division of what was all mixed up in the other parts of the ancient Near East, all of them mixed up with, with magical overtones. And now in the Old Testament we're saying, well, there's this practical side, and there's this symbolic side, there's this religious side, uh, which... Is, is somehow separate. And we're going to use different words in Hebrew to, to denote the two. And, uh, of course, the danger that, that, that the Old Testament uh, perceived was of, was of seeing the oil itself as having magical properties. A little bit like those pictures I showed you earlier. You know, that actually is the oil that has the magical properties. The Hebrew mind doesn't think of the oil as having a magical property. thinks of God as using the the oil, the oil is a symbol of God's power and God's presence and something that God is doing. And that's probably why we have this kind of separation. So let's just look at that in a little bit more detail. 
There is there in the Old Testament there the anointing of kings. And if you are familiar with the Old Testament, you'll remember some of the stories. The anointing of Saul when he becomes the first king of Israel by Samuel in 1 Samuel 9 verse 16. And then later the anointing of David. I expect you remember that story. Saul, uh, Samuel is sent to anoint one of the sons of Jesse as king over Israel. And all the sons come out. And the first come, comes out and he looks very impressive and uh, very handsome. And uh, Samuel thinks, well that's the one, must be him. And then the next one comes out and they come out at time and time. They're all, none of them are any good. It's not the right one. And of course it's David who's still in the fields tending the sheep. Uh, and so he says, come, bring David. We won't go until we've seen him. And as soon as David arrives, the Lord said, and this is a quote, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. 1 Samuel 16, verse 12 to 13. So what happened to David? Samuel poured oil onto his head from a horn, probably looking a little bit like that horn. A ram's horn was a convenient receptacle for oil. Uh, I don't know whether David would have been anointed with a, a fragrant oil, but certainly later in the anointing of kings, they mix various um, fragrant spices and, and uh, to, make the, to make the oil fragrant and, and to smell nice when they poured it onto the, to the head of the king. But that's, that's, that's what happens to David and then all subsequent kings. What does it signify? Well, a few things. Firstly, that it is God who is taking the initiative in, in, in appointing this king. So we know that in the case of Saul and David, Samuel was sent, sent by God to anoint them as king. And so God is the one taking the initiative. This is not a, 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 some group within Israel deciding who their king should be. This is God deciding who their king should be and sending a prophet to anoint the king. That's the first thing, that, that it's God's initiative. The second thing is that it's conveying authority. So if you look at Psalm 45, verse 7, it says this, it's speaking of the king, You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. So there's a sense in which the king is set above, as kings are, aren't they? Set above his companions, given and authority through the anointing with oil. And then there is the gift of the Holy Spirit. So we've already read that passage from 1 Samuel 16 where it says that as soon as David was anointed, from that day on it says, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. So the, the kings were endued, imbued with the Holy Spirit uh, that they might fulfil the task that God had given them. So that was a key part of the anointing, of what the anointing symbolised. And also there's a sense in which the kings are under God's protection. So uh, time and again when Saul, when David has the opportunity to, to harm Saul, when David's on the run, you remember that uh, Saul is still king, David's already anointed as king, uh, and he's a threat to Saul, so he's on the run, 
He's got his mighty men and they're, they're kind of in different places. And there are various occasions when David has the opportunity to, to harm Saul. There's one particular occasion when he's hiding in a cave. And Saul comes into the cave to relieve himself. And, uh, and David could easily have killed him. But he doesn't. So all he does is cut a bit from the cloak, from the, from the king's cloak, uh, to prove that he could have, uh, he could have killed him. Uh, and what David says on that occasion is this. He says that he, it will be wrong to harm the Lord's anointed. And he says that several times on different occasions. And he's, he's had the opportunity to, to do that. And so there's this sense in which uh, there is such a respect for the king, for the Lord's anointed, for the one that God has anointed, that they are under protection. So there is the anointing of kings in the Old Testament, and there is also the anointing of priests. In Exodus chapter 29, verse 7, we see the high priest anointed, uh, and then later the other priests in Exodus 40, verse 15. They are anointed to consecrate them. There is a a long process of consecration. It's a seven-day process that they go through, and essentially what's happening is they're being set apart from the mundane, from the everyday life, from all that is sinful, from all that is mundane, they're being set apart, consecrated for God's work. And uh, some say that this happened only later in Israel's history, when uh, Israel was in the exile and the high priests took on some of the functions of the kings. It doesn't really matter to us uh, whether it happened in the Exodus or whether it happened in the exile, uh, because really what we're thinking about here today is the, is the symbolic nature of anointing. And the symbolism is very similar for the high priests as it is for the, for the kings. There is this setting apart, there is this commissioning for a task uh, that God is setting the priests apart for. And there is this additional concept of, of consecration, of cleansing in some way. And it happens also to objects, just out of interest. We're not particularly concerned with objects today, we're more thinking about people. But, but the, the altar, the tabernacle, the sanctuary vessels, you know, the Ark of the Covenant, all of them are anointed with oil uh, in, in, uh, in the Old Testament as a way of consecrating them. But I want to look at one other verse as well, which is, which is a key verse in the Old Testament, which is this verse from... Isaiah 61, verse 1. It's, if you like, it's the joker in the pack. Because it doesn't refer either to kings or to priests. So the prophet says this, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Now it may be the joker in the pack, but it's actually an incredibly important verse. And you probably know why it's an incredibly important verse if you know your New Testament well. But let's think of it in the Old Testament context first. In the Old Testament context, what the prophet is doing is not saying that he has been physically anointed with oil for the task that he has, but he's seeing anointing in a metaphorical way. He's saying, I have been set apart for a particular task just as the kings were, just as the priests are. I have been set apart, he's saying, to preach good news, to speak 
the words of the Lord. That's what the prophet is saying. Well, you know, probably, that it's an important verse because it also relates to Jesus' ministry. And it's fulfilled in Jesus' ministry. And we'll say a little more about that in a minute. But I just wanted to highlight it here. So that there is this, it's almost like a link between the Old Testament concept of anointing and the New Testament concept of anointing. It's a kind of bridge between the Old and the New Testaments, this verse. Uh, But as you'll see, all that is said about anointing in the Old Testament is also hugely relevant to the New Testament. So let's just summarise what it symbolises in the Old Testament. Firstly, the sense of being set apart for a task given by God. So the kings were set apart, the priests were set apart, the prophets sees themselves as set apart. And they're given authority to lead, to minister in the sanctuary, in the case of the priests, to speak God's words in the case of the prophets. Given also, in some sense, God's protection and fundamentally the gift of the Holy Spirit, who is the one who enables the person to fulfil the task that they've been given. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, said the prophet, because he has anointed me to preach the news. It's the Holy Spirit working through the prophet. And similarly with the kings and the priests. When Saul was anointed, he begins to prophesy. You know the story? And it leads to a little uh, maxim in Israel. Is Saul also among the prophets? They're so surprised that he should be uh, prophesying. But it's because the Holy Spirit has come to fill him when he was anointed. So these are, are, this is the way it's understood in the summary in the Old Testament. And if you like, it's the foundation of what we see in the New Testament. And of course, what we see in the New Testament fundamentally, and most importantly, is the Anointed One. The Anointed One. Because, of course, Jesus uh, is called the Christ... Time and time and time again. You only have to open the New Testament maybe, to see somewhere, you probably find a page almost everywhere where you see Jesus Christ, Jesus the Christ. And of course Christ comes from Creo, which means anointed, to anoint, uh, and, and it means the same as Messiah in Hebrew. Now you probably knew that already. That's the link between your sermons on Sunday and my talk here. <laughs> So Jesus is the Christ. Now it it would be impossible for me to go through every single reference to Jesus being the Christ in the uh, the New Testament. So we're not going to do that. But we are going to look at just a few uh, verses where it's said separately that Jesus is anointed. Because I think they're quite illuminating and quite interesting. And they say something to us about how Jesus is anointed. It's all very well to say he is the anointed one, but what does that mean for his ministry? And we can just share a little bit of light on that by looking at some of these verses. So firstly, you know, he's said to be anointed in his mission. And so you remember uh, the verse from Isaiah 61, which comes again, if you know your New Testament well, in Luke chapter 4, verse 18. And it's that... It's that um, that event where Jesus goes to Nazareth. Remember Jesus goes to Nazareth? And he sta- he's invited to preach uh, in the synagogue. Uh, and what they would have done would be to open up uh, the scroll 
and he chooses the scroll of the prophet Isaiah and he begins to read and he invited to read and then to preach following the reading. So he opens the scroll of Isaiah and he begins to read these, these words. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom for the captives, recovery of sight for the blind, and so on. And then I suppose it must be the most dramatic sermon start in history, because the Bible says that he closed the scroll and he said to the people there, today, this prophecy has been fulfilled in your hearing. Isn't that incredible? Wouldn't it be remarkable to have been there? I, he said, I am the one. Nobody else could read that in the way that Jesus read it. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, meaning Jesus, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom for the captives and recovery of sight for the blind. And that's what he goes on to do, isn't it? To heal, to bring people to, to know God, to deliver people from evil. All of those things, to give sight to the blind, to preach good news to the poor. So he is anointed in his mission. And he is anointed in, in terms of uh, fulfilling another prophecy, which is the prophecy that we find in Psalm 2, which is about opposition. So I'm looking now at Acts chapter 4, verse 25 to 26, which is the incident where, the, where, the, where the, uh, the, the apostles, this is after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension, the apostles are being persecuted. And they pray. And they pray using Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage against the Lord and against his anointed one? And they go on to speak of Jesus, your holy servant Jesus. Remember, they're talking to God, they're praying. Your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. And so what they're saying is that Jesus is the anointed one of Psalm 2. Against whom the nations will try to rage, but they won't succeed. Because he is God's anointed one, he has God's protection. And we know that although Jesus was put to death on the cross, he rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, and sits at the right hand of the Father. And so he fulfills Psalm 2, and we see him also in the New Testament as anointed with the Holy Spirit. So in Acts 10, Peter, when he speaks to the people, says this, he says, he speaks of how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. And now he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. And so there we see Jesus as anointed with the Holy Spirit as no one else ever had been before and no one else ever would be. Imbued, empowered with the Holy Spirit in that remarkable way. And then finally, the, the book of Hebrews speaks of how Jesus fulfilled Psalm 45, verse 7, 
which is the verse that I read a little bit earlier about he has raised the king above his companions by anointing him with the oil of joy. And, and the writer of Hebrews speaks of the exaltation of the sun who has been set above his companions and anointed by God. He's speaking of Jesus not in his earthly ministry, but Jesus after the resurrection, after the ascension, set on the right hand of God. It's a very similar idea to the idea that Paul has when he speaks of Jesus and says, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. He is anointed in a place of kingship that is above any other rule and authority. Irrespective of what it looks like as well in our world, Jesus is in the ultimate place of authority. And his anointing as Messiah takes him there. When did his anointing take place? Well, most scholars would say it took place at his baptism. That as Jesus came out of the water, having been baptized by John the Baptist, you remember. There is a, a, it's as if a dove comes down from heaven. The Holy Spirit, as a dove come down, comes down from heaven and alights upon him. And uh, there's a voice from heaven. This is my son, my love. With him I am well pleased. And it's as if that is the moment of anointing, the moment when Jesus is commissioned for his ministry. Remember, he goes straight into the desert, into the wilderness, to be tempted. And after the time of testing, he goes out and begins to preach and begins to teach and begins to heal the sick and begins to cast out demons to, to do his work of ministry. So he's been anointed and then he goes out. He's tested and then he goes out. And that understanding of Jesus' anointing is important because it helps us understand how we are anointed. Because remember that my title is Anointed Saviour, Anointed People. And I want to just move on, just to think about how it is that we are anointed. And there are two, there's very little in the New Testament, which says directly that we are anointed, but there's a lot that implies it. And there are two strands of teaching which are important. The first is the strand of teaching that comes from Paul, the Apostle Paul, and the second is a strand that comes from John, a Johann strand. Uh, and their emphasis is slightly different, so I want to talk about both of them. So the first, Paul, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 21 to 22. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He has anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Now this is a very important verse because it gives us three pictures, if you like, of what it means to be in Christ. And remember that Christ means the anointed one. And one of 
Paul's favourite phrases is to say that we are, as Christians, in Christ. Now you might think of that as meaning in Jesus or something like that. But in Christ, of course, means in the Anointed One. So we are in the Anointed One or in the Messiah. What does it mean? Well, there are three things here which help us, I think. The first, so Paul is saying firstly that in Christ we are anointed like the kings and priests of old. So they would have been very familiar with, uh, with, uh, with, with Jewish history and the Old Testament because they, the Old Testament was their only Bible in those days, as Paul was in the process of writing his letters and other things were in the process of being New Testament documents were in the process of being written. Uh, so he's saying to the, to, to, the, to the Corinthians, you're anointed like the kings and priests. Hmm, interesting concept. Anointed. And also, the second picture is a picture of a seal. The Holy Spirit is like a seal. He has anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us. <coughs> which kind of assures us that we belong to Jesus, that we are in Christ. And uh, it's like the seal in the picture, it's like a document seal, it's sealing, it's making it's legal, all of those, all of those things that we think about, they thought about too. You're anointed, you have God's seal set upon you, and the Holy Spirit in your life is like a deposit. He's put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit. We know what a deposit is. You put down a deposit on a house, you put down a deposit on a car, whatever it may be, a down payment. The Holy Spirit, Paul says, is like a down payment on heaven. A little bit of heaven now. And these three pictures, I think they function together to help us to understand a little bit about what the Holy Spirit is doing in our lives. See, some people say it's actually a verse that refers to baptism and gives us some justification for anointing people in baptism. Now, I'll come to that in a little bit. I don't think there's any wrong with anointing people in baptism, but I'm not sure this verse gives us the justification, actually. I think Paul is just using it as a picture, a picture that they would have been familiar with. And the overtones are the, the overtones of the Old Testament that I've already spoken to you about. That's what the anointing means. And it's, it's linked with the idea of a seal, it's linked with the idea of a deposit, and it's all connected to the Holy Spirit. You see that? He's anointed us in the seal of ownership and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit. See, all of these things are symbols or pictures. The anointing is a symbol, the seal is a picture, it's not real, we don't, genuinely, we don't really get sealed, do we? The deposit is a picture, a way of describing what the Holy Spirit does in our lives. And so if Jesus is anointed for service, if Jesus is commissioned by the Father, and empowered by the Father through the Holy Spirit, to go out, to do mission, to serve in the world, then so are we. Because we are in Christ. In the Anointed One. 
and forces here we are anointed by the Holy Spirit. And that phrase, in Christ, is a quite incredible phrase. If you start to look for it in Paul, you'll see it all over the place. Because what Paul means by it, I think, is that whatever belongs to Jesus, belongs to us. Whatever Jesus has, is at our disposal. That's wild, remarkable, isn't it? But we are in him. Another phrase Paul uses, we are the body of Christ. We are part of Christ. Whatever belongs to him belongs to us. Whatever is true of him in terms of anointing is true of us. That's Paul's theology. Let's go on and just have a little look at John. So John, in if you believe that John wrote John's letters, if you don't, don't worry, it's just a disciple. But it's the same, it's a similar strand of theology that runs through John's gospel and the and the Johannine letters. So we won't worry about who wrote them, but let's just, let's just say it's John for the moment, okay? But if you worry about those things, we won't, we won't get too much about it. But so what it says is this, but you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. As for you, the anointing you receive from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. So John is speaking about the anointing, about rather than them being anointed. It's interesting, slightly different emphasis. What does he mean by the anointing? Well, he's most concerned in his letter about false teachers. So he's very concerned that they should be able to know the difference between uh, false teaching and good teaching. And what he's saying here, if you look at it, is he's saying that it's the anointing that will show you the difference. It's the anointing that will enable you to know what the truth is. You all have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. It's to do with the anointing, whatever that may be. As for you, the anointing you receive from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. Well, what can it mean? Well, if you look back to John's Gospel, and that's why I say the, the theology runs from John's Gospel right way through the letters. If you look back to John's Gospel, in John's Gospel, Jesus speaks about the spirit of truth, doesn't he? So in John 14, verse 17, Jesus speaks about the spirit of the... He said, when he's talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit... He says, the spirit of the truth, of truth will come. And later he says in verse 26, 14 verse 26, He will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. So what's the anointing again here that John's talking about? Hey, it's the Holy Spirit again. Same thing as we had before. Same as we see all the way through. Old Testament, New Testament, right the way through. And here the emphasis on the way that the Holy Spirit teaches us. The way that the Holy Spirit, as he comes into our lives, begins to speak to us about the things of Jesus. You know, I've seen situations where people have come to Christ uh, and, and they've begun to change their thinking without even looking at the Bible. You know, because the Holy Spirit is beginning to change them. 
And they're saying, oh, well, it's not right to swear, is it? Or it's not right to do this, or it's not right to do that. And they haven't even, they couldn't tell you where to find it in the Bible. But because the Holy Spirit is now in their life, they're beginning to speak to them. They're beginning to change and do things differently. And that's what John's talking about. We need both, I would say. We need the scriptures as well as the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. Because we are always prone to get it wrong sometimes. We don't always get it right. We need to balance and, and use both. But that's what John's talking about. And so it's the, the anointing here again is the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit. Now, having looked at those two strands to do with anointing, for completeness, I just need to mention one other mention of anointing in the, Old Te- in the, in the New Testament, which is anointing for healing. And here we're back to physical anointing. We, we've been in the kind of metaphorical realm, haven't we? The, the idea of anointing, uh, the anointing being, being of the Holy Spirit, not being physical, but being but, but something that happens to us. But here we're in the physical realm. So anointing oil was used in praying for the sick in two, on two occasions in the New Testament. Firstly by Jesus' disciples in Mark 6 verse 13, where it says this, They drove out many demons and anointed with oil many people who were ill and healed them. And then the more famous verse, which is the verse in James 5, verse 14, which says, If anyone among you is ill, let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Now, to be honest with you, this practice probably has its roots in the use of oil in healing in popular culture in, the, in, those, in those days. Remember the Good Samaritan. What did he do with the man who, um, who was wounded and bruised? He poured oil on his wounds. Do you remember? In the story. And so this is where this is coming from probably, but actually it's becoming something slightly different in the hands of Jesus' disciples and in the hands of the elders of the church. It's becoming a symbolic anointing, which is symbolic of the healing of the Holy Spirit. Here we are again with the Holy Spirit. That actually when, when the elders of the church anoint the Lord in the name of the Lord, it's the Lord who heals. See, it's nothing about the oil, is it? It's not that the oil has some magical property that's going to heal them. But it symbolises the healing of the Holy Spirit, what God can do. And, and there's an important emphasis, isn't there, in James on the prayer of faith as well. The prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. Remember how often Jesus talked about faith being important to healing. And so there are two parts to it. There's the, the importance of of the prayer of faith and is the importance of the anointing, healing presence of the Holy Spirit. Now today in the church we still use oil to, uh, to anoint for healing and that's uh, something we do quite regularly at St. Sebastian's. Uh, and about a month ago uh, we had a healing service and somebody came in off the street uh, and I mean literally off the street because she said to me, 
I've never been to a church service before. Uh, she was brought by somebody else. But she said, I've never been to a church service before. And she came in and I didn't know her and I didn't know what was going on in her life. But actually what was going on was that she was incredibly depressed. Uh, and, and she said it was like there was just black, a blackness of weight upon her. And uh, she came forward for anointing with oil. Now what I did was make the sign of the cross on her forehead and pray for Jesus to heal, heal her in mind, body and spirit. That was all I did. And afterwards she came to me and said, it's like the black, she explained about the blackness, she said it's like it's completely lifted and, and light has come into my mind. Isn't that amazing? Well, I was anointed with oil. It wasn't, my, it wasn't the oil that made, that made the difference. It wasn't me that made the difference. It was the Holy Spirit that made the difference. She's come back to church every Sunday since then. This is real. This still happens. The Holy Spirit is still at work in the world. And using symbols like this and lots of other things as well. Prayer doesn't have to be the anointing with oil, but... When people pray for healing, healing still happens. Just a quick word, I'm coming to land, in case you were. Just a quick word about anointing today, just in case you were wondering about the church union and anointing and what we do. Because the church union does use uh, anointing in different contexts. And there are three kinds of oil, they're all um, prayed over by the bishop. Uh, and they're, they're seen as slightly different. So there's the oil of prism, which is used at, can be used at baptism and is often used at confirmation. And that uh, is a fragrant oil that, that represents our calling as disciples, uh, disciples of Jesus. And it, it has a lot of that background of the Old Testament in it and, and what we've been talking about today. And I'll say a little bit more about it in a minute. If it's done at baptism, it's done after the baptism. Okay? There can be two anointings in the baptism service. Uh, and the second, the other anointing in baptism is the is anointing with the oil of catechumens, which is a, a, a sign of divine help in the struggle of life, if you like. You know in the baptism service, you see many plenty of baptism services, I'm sure. You know in the baptism service where the, where the priest makes the sign of the cross on the forehead of the of the child, if it's a child, or adult, if it's an adult. That's the oil, if, if you, they're using oil, they don't have to use oil, but if they're using oil, that's the oil of catechumens. And uh, it goes right back to the time when they used to, to have a long process of preparation for baptism, and they used oil as part of that process of pre- preparation, the catechumens. Uh, and it was associated with exorcism and preparation, deliverance from evil, preparation for for baptism, and it's got put into our baptism service. And it may have something, it may be connected in some way with the, those words in James 5 where it says, the prayer of faith will raise a sick man up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven, it goes on to say. There may be something between those two things, but oil in, in that context. And then the third use of oil is, I've just described it in prayer for healing. So, I don't want to get hung up on anointing today particularly, but, um, but I just wanted you to know that's, that's how 
takes you apart from the church of England. That's how the church of England uses oil. Not all church of England ministers use oil, and not all of them use all the oils. Um, but uh, it is there. But where it's used, we need to remember that it's a symbol. Okay, it's not anything to do with the oil itself. It's a symbol of the work of the Holy Spirit. So, I want to finish by saying that you are anointed. Peter says this, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a people belonging to God. A royal priesthood. You know, we've seen the anointing of kings, we've seen the anointing of priests, haven't we, right back in the Old Testament. And like the Old Testament kings, like the Old Testament priests, we as believers, as followers of Jesus, are anointed. And that's what the oil of chrism represents. That's why it's used sometimes in baptism and at confirmation. If you like, at the start of the Christian journey. Because it represents several things. It represents the fact that you are set apart for a task given by God. See, there's none of us who can sit back in our chairs and think somebody else will do all the work. You know? In the church. And in the mission field. Because actually, we're all called to ministry of one sort or another. Now, it may not be the ministry of a priest or a deacon or the kind of thing, the kind of public ministry that John and I exercise and others. But we all have a role to play. There is something that Jesus has called you to do. Do you find that encouraging? I think that's really encouraging. That actually, you have a place in God's plan. You're anointed for something. Anointed with the Holy Spirit. And that anointing enables you to know His will. Remember what John says, the anointing will teach you all things. We can be guided by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit still speaks to us today. I'll give you a silly example. Really silly example. I was doing a, an assembly yesterday at St. Sebastian's School. No. Today at St. Sebastian's School. <laughs> it's been that long a day. And I had not written this in my diary. And I had forgotten that I was doing an assembly at St. Sebastian's School. Halfway through last week, I get a little voice in my head saying, there's an assembly that's fast in school next week, isn't there? Because I know where they are. You're sure you're not doing it? And I thought, I asked about that. I remind myself. Yesterday morning, no, yeah, sometime yesterday, the little voice came back. There's an assembly that's fast in school. Are you sure you're not doing it? This time I listened. Looked it up. I thought it was a silly example. But I truly believe that the Holy Spirit was nudging me. I didn't say that. Because I know what God's voice sounds like. Because the more you spend time with God and the more you, 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 you listen to Him, the more you, re you recognize the little nudges. And that was a little nudge. And I should have listened to it the first time, and I'd been better prepared if I'd listened to it the first time. But the Holy, I said it's a silly example, but the Holy Spirit does speak 
to us today and does guide us. And the Holy Spirit helps us to fulfil what he asks us to do. He gives us the tools for the job. Just as the kings were given authority and the prophets were given words, so whatever we need, God gives us. And uh, Paul speaks a lot, doesn't he, about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And some of them are kind of exotic, like prophecy and healing, and some of them are things like encouragement and teaching. Not, they, they, they seem to us more normal. But I believe that what it means is that we are giving the tools for the job. Whatever God has called us to do, He will equip us. He will enable us to do it. However weak we may feel. And the anointing is there also to show us that we are in Christ. See, I believe that we are meant to know that the Holy Spirit is in us. That we are meant to sense that the Holy Spirit is in us. And it may just be a sense of God's love for us. It may just be that occasional, largely occasional sense of warmth and the presence of God. Or it may be more than that. But if the Holy Spirit is a seal guaranteeing that we belong to Jesus, if the Holy Spirit is a deposit of down payment on heaven, surely we're supposed to know that he's there? I had someone come to church on Sunday, another one I didn't know, and, uh, and she said to me after service, she said, I've, I've not been in church for a long time. She said, she said, I was puzzled because I was feeling really emotional in the service. And I danced, she really liked the service. She said, I was feeling really emotional in the service and I don't understand why. Now I've heard this before. So I said, no, I know what it was. <laughs> it was the presence of the Holy Spirit. See, the Holy Spirit was beginning to touch parts of her life that, that, that were sort of emotions, was beginning to touch her deeply. I've had people weeping in services since that since, when the Holy Spirit was touching them. And they're weeping and they'll say, that was great. <laughs> you know, because it's some kind of release that God is doing in them. But you see, it's, it's a physical thing. The Holy Spirit engages with us. He's not kind of out there and, and distant. But he engages with us. He gives me little nudges. You know, he, 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 uh, he touches a woman who's, who's not been to church for years and, and makes her feel emotional. And then she tells the vicar and the vicar says, hey, that was the presence of God. She says, oh, you know. <laughs> She said, I'll come back next week. <laughs> the anointing is the gift of the Holy Spirit. If you want to summarize it in a very simple way. And it's for anyone in Christ, anyone who belongs to Jesus. And it's received by faith. See, our faith grows and our faith wanes. And some churches talk about, Pentecostal churches talk about the anointing growing and we have a bigger anointing and all this kind of stuff. I don't think that's the case at all. I think we are anointed. But our apprehension, our understanding of the Holy Spirit grows depending on our faith. 
See, the more we trust God, and the more we believe that the Holy Spirit is at work in our lives, the more we begin to see of his work. And the more it will be as if we have a greater anointing. We don't have a greater anointing. We're already anointed. Holy Spirit's already available to us, but as we begin to explore more of his presence, as we begin by faith to receive more of what he wants to give us, so we begin to understand that we are truly anointed. That we are commissioned for a task, that he does give us the tools that we need for the job. And that he is able to do, as Paul put it, immeasurably more than all we could ask or conceive or imagine. Let's pray to him. And I just want you for a moment just to think about what we've been talking about tonight and, and just think, what is it that you want from God? Don't worry about what I've said particularly. Maybe there's something, just as you're sitting there, you're thinking, I want this from God. If that's what you're thinking, and there's something that you want God to do, just name it quietly to him now. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are the anointed one and that we are anointed in Christ with the Holy Spirit. Lord, may we by faith take hold of all that you have planned for us. May we see prayers answered. May we see your Holy Spirit working in our lives and in the lives of others, that you might be glorified and your kingdom go forward. Amen. Amen. Andrew, thank you. Um, are you willing to take any questions? Yes. If anybody does. <laughs> As you know, I love to come around with a microphone, but nothing's working this evening. So what we'll do instead is, if, if you would like to ask a question or make a comment, um, feel free to do that. Uh, and what I'll then try and do to save Andrew's voice is repeat it back so that probably everybody can hear it. And then Andrew will have the opportunity to respond. Is that okay? So does anybody want to make a comment on um, an exceptional... An exceptional lecture. Yeah, Ken. Thank you so much. Uh, I, I've been a, a Christian for many years. Uh, I don't expect that I'm going to come along and learn great deal. But I must say to you this evening, you have given me some very, very helpful thoughts. And I particularly like this concept of the deposit. Yes. That we're not be perfect. Yes. And we're, 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 we're on the road. And the other thing which I think is always always strikes me as so wonderful is that these gifts of the spirit, we have such different gifts. And and and, and uh, the body of Christ needs those different gifts. Mm. And we have some we have a wonderful experience here. I mean just with terms of this flock. 
haven't comprehended in a way for many years. What I find so wonderful is that our teaching, our clergy, was different. It's more different. Where's that John? Where's that friend at the back? I'm here because one is one is working on this thing. And both are necessary. And a wonderful relationship. A new uh, a new life and I'm going on too much, but just the difficulty is Ken that I'm not quite sure that I can relate. Ken has referred to his great age, (laughs) the love of his Christian experience, the fact that we wouldn't expect to come to um, a lecture like this and to learn very much, Um, but he said how much he'd learned. He also said that one thing that struck him was um, the uh, metaphor that uh, Andrew drew attention to of the down payment. He also referred to coming back to this flock, which I thought was a lovely phrase, and um, being reminded of the importance of the body of Christ and the difference that we all are. He then made some strange comments about the clergy. <laughs> different, which I took to mean very odd. <laughs> he says, it's been going on too long. Andrew, is there anything in that that you'd like to respond <laughs> I don't think so. I mean, it was very kind of you to say so. I'm glad you found it helpful. And um, it's not just the clergy who are very odd, is it? Really? You know, we're all different and we all have different gifts. Not just the clergy. Well. So, and that's the wonderful thing about the world of Christ. So, yes, Jill. There was just one thing that occurred to me while I was speaking. Uh, just a phrase talking about oil. Pouring oil on troubled waters. Mm. You know, Another instance of using oil as a metaphor, of course. Yes, and there is that psalm, isn't there? And I can't remember which one it is, which talks about unity, about about the unity, about unity being like oil running down Aaron's beard. Do you remember that song? Yeah. It's not a terribly popular song. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and so there's some kind of link there, isn't there, between between oil and and certainly unity within, within the within God's people, um, which kind of links in with your oil on troubled waters to some to some degree. Uh, although it isn't a it isn't a phrase if I'm in the Bible, I didn't think. But, but I think it's kind of the whole concept is and the spirit the Holy Spirit is a spirit of peace and you know and harmony and all of the and unity and all of those things. So so actually it works quite well. <laughs> so I didn't get to last I said the Holy Spirit is a a spirit of peace and harmony and unity, and so the oil on troubled waters idea works quite well, you know, even though it's not a biblical picture. Yeah, Sarah. Just, um, I was quite interested with your tale of the lady who came and felt very emotional. Yes. Because um, I did realise I was a good one. I, I went to see a school so I was brought up but didn't go to church and always had faith so I think one of my gifts was gifted with faith. However, um, in my late teens I was walked by a bereavement and so I turned my back and after many, many moons of 
trying my damnedest to annoy him. <laughs> he kept picking me up. And uh, when I, you know, really didn't feel I deserved to be picked up and dusted off. So when I returned to church, I've always been very musical and loved singing and the pop charts, etc. And I spent the first at least a month weeping through every hymn because I was just mm. so thoroughly moved. And I know he was just, mm. I think, maybe weeping with me that I came Shall I, shall I just relay some of that? Um, Sharon was talking about her own background and experience and how um, she held on to her faith but she didn't attend church for quite a long time after um, she'd been rocked by a bereavement in teenagers. Yeah, 17. Um, and um, she was thinking about this in relation to the example that Andrew used of, of the lady who, um, who had felt very emotional just coming into church. And um, Sharon was saying that she'd always liked music, and um, when she started coming back to church, it was the hymns that got to her, and she used to weep her way through the hymns. Um, so, <laughs> so I don't know whether you want to respond to that, so, Andrew. Well, you know, that, that, you know, that is an experience that I've seen a number of times of people that, they, that, they, that they're touched emotionally by God. And, and God, you, you, know, you could say with the Holy Spirit doing it, but he uses vehicles like hymns and other things that are going on in the surface to, to service, to, to spark off people in different ways. So, and sometimes there's a kind of healing going on, I think. You know, that, that somehow maybe you were working through a, the, some pain from the bereavement. or I mean, sometimes God does things you don't actually know what he's doing. <laughs> but, it, but something's going on. And you feel better afterwards. You know, it's like those people who say to me, I cried my way through church, but it was really good, you know. <laughs> because actually God is doing something, but but you don't you never quite know what and do we need to know necessarily. You know, if we if we feel good and we feel better and we have stronger a stronger faith as a result, then hey, that's great, isn't it? I, I came with loads of questions, but um, with your skill of, of presenting all the biblical um, uh, exposition, it, you answered most of them. But, but I hadn't really thought about um, anointing in John. And I, I wondered whether you thought, or whether, whether the anointing uh, took place for the apostles when Jesus breathed on them and said receive the Holy Spirit is I mean that would be a, that would be another metaphorical use of the term, wouldn't it? And and I I just wondered whether you thought um, that had anything to do with the strand that you picked up from from the first letter. Well it doesn't say that yes, I mean you're probably right. In John's theology, when Jesus breathes on the disciples is is like the moment of Pentecost, isn't it? Is the is the, is the kind of moment of the impartation of the Holy Spirit. Now, there's no reference to anointing at that point in the scriptures, but you could you could argue that in, in the Johannine theology, that is that is the moment. Um, it's tricky, isn't it? Because you 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 know clearly there we believe that the day of Pentecost was a historical event, but does John know about it? I don't know. That's, that's interesting, isn't it? But, but there may have been two occasions where Jesus. 
commissioned the disciples, but then later they received the spirit of Pentecost. So, I mean, that's the way I would want to yeah, that. And certainly Pentecost didn't preclude them being the same people being visited with the spirit again. No. moved by the spirit. And, no. And, and indeed the house shaking. Well, that's right. There are lots of occasions, aren't there, when, they're, when, they're, when they receive the Holy Spirit. And actually that shows that there's, you know, we don't just receive the Holy Spirit once. You know, we can keep on receiving. In fact, one of Paul's, in one of Paul's letters, uh, you know, the, the verb that he uses can be translated along <coughs> being filled with the Holy Spirit. It's a continuous um, sense. I think it's Ephesians. It's a be filled with the Holy Spirit. And, and, it can, and the, the verb can be translated go on being filled because it's a continuous understanding. So, so just as for the disciples, so for us, we can go on being filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, somebody said we leak. So we need to keep on <laughs> well, and, and of course, at every Eucharistic prayer, the minister, the priest, invokes the Holy Spirit. Exactly. And indeed, we are renewed and refreshed. And um, so as we leak, we come, we, we get refreshed. And yes, yes. And actually what I do, it may not be what you do, it may not be your theology, but what I do is at the Eucharistic prayer, I stretch my hands out to the people. And I say, send your Holy Spirit, and ask, and ask, and actually, I ask the Holy Spirit to come upon the people of God when I when I'm celebrating communion. But that depends on whether you're thinking it's coming on the people or coming on the bread and the wine, or maybe both. <laughs> Is there anything else that anyone would like to ask or to comment about? I, I, I hesitate. I've had such a mouthful before. <laughs> I just, because I sort of focused on the, on, on the professionals, I, I just really wanted to affirm uh, the other gifts. I mean, the something was behind that uh, uh, bar tonight, and the times that I've seen her, exercising her gifts of service. And as we look around, again, as we've got different gifts for the clergy, so we have such, such different gifts and some wonderful gifts in our way There would be no point having clergy if you didn't have a church, would there? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't think it would be much point. <laughs> so, uh, Ken, I, I don't... Ken was, Ken was just saying that it's not just the clergy where all these gifts are apparent and he was referring to people working in the kitchen uh, for which, thank you very much and um, as you go out if there are any gaps on the rotor and <laughs> well, we are grateful to, to the people who provide the refreshments we're grateful to Richard who has done his best with the, um, with, with the technology that remains to us um, nothing would happen, would it, without so much, so many skills being being deployed? Karen. Can I just comment on um, with your presentation, Andrew? You, you've drawn out some incredible verses that really uh, we should take home with us um, as being such a promise. Um, so thank you. The, the, 
website with the tape or I don't know if that's what you'd normally do but uh, then you can have a look at it and remind yourself of something. We would, we would love to do that if you're happy for us to do that. Yes. Because, yes. because even Carolyn who has a capacious memory won't have remembered every single <laughs> <laughs> I've tried to reference things even if I haven't put the whole verse on the, you, you, on the screen. You, you've done extraordinarily, extraordinarily well. Because I was spotting how many texts there were, and I, I lost count of it. So. <laughs> well, Andrew, I, I'm surprised that there were really any questions at all, because it seemed to me that, that you had delved so deeply into the subject, that you had um, uh, expounded it so, um, so extraordinarily well, and with such clarity. The thought process was absolutely crystal clear throughout. Um, I thought it was a difficult topic. Um, I was I was delighted that you'd chosen it, and it fitted in so well with what we've been thinking about on Sunday. But I never really expected it would come over so well. And I think part of that is that um, I felt, towards the end anyway, uh, your uh, presentation was really quite inspirational. Just because we're talking about the Holy Spirit doesn't make us inspirational. But uh, especially, as you um, told us, at the end of a long day and being able to keep your um, voice levels up to cope with our technical problems, um, we're really grateful for all the time that you put into that, for coming to us this evening, and, um, and for all that you've given us too. So thank you. just relaxing for a moment there are always um, a, a couple of uh, consequentials and um, next week's lecture is by Angharad Harry Jones and it's on the subject of living reconciliation this is her book which she jointly wrote and it says on the front of it I believe that living reconciliation can transform our world this is the Archbishop of Canterbury speaking uh, and she is going to explain how this process of reconciliation is, is being used within the Anglican Communion, the worldwide Anglican Communion, where you'll be aware there are a lot of contentious issues where people find it difficult, on principle, to agree. And this is a process for trying to recognise that difference and to respect the people who hold different opinions from yourself. Uh, and so it's an attempt, uh, not necessarily to hold the communion together, but at least to get us loving our brothers and sisters in the Anglican Church, even where we don't agree with them. She's coming all the way from Cardiff, and I think that she too will be an excellent speaker on this topic. Um, I've, mentioned, I've mentioned the rotor. Um, it's full now, is it? Well, you see, everybody is so, so generous with their uh, willingness to sign up, so thank you for that. Um, and we've left a little um, basket outside. If you wanted to make a contribution to the costs of the whole series, and if we get anything over, we'll give it to our Lent charity, which, as you know, is packed 
this year. But Andrew, once again, thank you very much for the time that you put into this. And-